He's a retired Arizona State Trooper. He's also a United States Army veteran. During his law enforcement career, he worked in patrol. He was a gang unit detective, SWAT team member, and spent many years in the bomb squad. He's here to talk about his law enforcement career, the complications and stress from defusing bombs and explosive devices, and much more. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you've got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Colleagues from Arizona, we have... Ken Emerson on the phone. Ken is the United States Army veteran, also retired Arizona State Trooper. He's got a great website called 50careers.com, which we'll talk about later on in the show. Ken, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. John Gay, I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. It's an honor. It's good to have you here. One of the things that I like doing with this show is breaking stereotypes. And and quite honestly, Americans are, are fed a an untrue depiction of what law enforcement officers do in every aspect of law enforcement, from Hollywood, the news media, social media, you name it. But you spent a large part of your career in a segment of law enforcement that is really not understood. And I'll be honest, by me, you're a bomb squad technician, correct? And that is correct. First of all, thank you for your service in the military and also in Arizona. I'll be honest with you. I don't know the first thing about bombs i'll tell people this every call we had for a bomb threat usually in a school it was always a false alarm but one of the things they do is you get a call from the dispatcher say call me and you call them and that was the first clue they want you to turn off your radio we wouldn't have the radios on when we went in there because that could trigger some of the old devices so and we searched the building and it always came up you know nothing there which was Thank God, the case. That's not always the case, and I'm sure you have plenty of experience dealing with that. Correct, yeah. So we would actually, in the state of Arizona, you know, the DPS bomb squad, we had both full-time and part-time uh, squad members, and we were the most called, one of the most called units with the state police. We would, on average, go to three, four, sometimes 500 calls a year throughout the state of Arizona. And quite a few of those were false alarms at schools, but a lot of them were because we live in a state that has a mining industry. So we get a lot of old dynamite, a lot of old blasting caps. Sometimes we get calls and they're simply road flares, but we're traveling constantly throughout the state of Arizona answering those calls. And you're correct. We get on scene at a call. You definitely don't want to be making a phone call when you're standing over a suspicious package. So that's a lot of what we train fellow officers to do that if you get a suspicious package don't call it in from where you're standing don't activate your radio don't call your cell phone right but, and, and and what yeah. is the reason why for that well because it depending on how the improvised explosive device was developed if it was an IED 
depending on how it was developed. So you don't want any kind of stray currents going over the air that might interact with whatever the device you have on the ground. So, for instance, the individuals at the bombings in at the marathon in Boston, they had antennas sticking out from the pressure cookers in which they built the IEDs. You don't want to stand over that and activate your radio because some kind of inadvertent transmission could possibly set off that device. I got to tell you a story about the closest call I ever had. I was the acting lieutenant. I was a sergeant and I was working an area of Baltimore called the block, uh, which is where all the the exotic dancers were. And a young lady who's an exotic dancer was locked out of her car. So I helped her unlock her car. And when I went in to get the keys, she said her registration was in the center console, which when I opened the center console, it was an old Camaro, by the way. In there, I almost knocked myself out because I saw what looked like three sticks of dynamite taped to each other with a long fuse on it. I thought, this is the end for me. It's over. Turns out, they were roadside flares. She tried to make look like dynamite to scare people. Well, it worked. It scared me, and it gave her one-way trip to the jail. Absolutely. So in 2008, I actually wrote two laws in the state of Arizona. Senate Bill 1153, Senate Bill 1154. 1153 made it illegal for individuals to develop improvised explosive devices. 1154 was actually a law that strengthened that very case that you just mentioned, and if you were to take a stick device and place it on somebody's car, before it used to be a misdemeanor. And we strengthened that law to make it a felony in the state of Arizona for somebody to make a, a fake device just to scare somebody. Yeah, I don't know why someone want to scare someone. I, I get road rage. I understand all that. But I'll tell you the truth. When you've got these things going on and it's totally unexpected, you don't have a chance to really become afraid. You, you don't get to think about it. You just react. I literally hit my head so hard on the T-top, I almost knocked myself out because I really thought it was dynamite. And we've heard stories of law enforcement officers being inadvertently killed or killed in deliberate acts with explosives. And I think it was Eric Rudolph is one of the ones I think of right away where uh, they were bombing and it's not a new tactic. It's been going on since the 60s. Correct. Yep, and, and another device that we see often especially across the country, are the inner hand grenades. You know, the old pineapple hand grenades from World War II, from uh, Korea, Vietnam, that they're paper waste. They're holes on the bottom, but a lot of people will pack those with with some kind of filler, you know, tape something on the bottom to hold that, you know, to, to cover that hole, and you basically got an improvised explosive device. And people carry those around their vehicles. We got many calls you know, when an officer would open up the vehicles and see a grenade land there not knowing if it's real or not. So we're having to shut down full intersections and disrupting a lot of lives so we can get in there and take a look at it to see if it's real or not. Here's what may seem like a crazy question. I was in narcotics. I did drug raids. I was never in SWAT. I know you were in SWAT for a while. We did all the the high tactical, the high threat raids. We did all that stuff, arresting murderers. I never once in my life thought, hey, I think I want to be a bomb squad tech. How does one go about saying, hey, that just isn't popping your head on a Saturday, does it? It doesn't. So for me personally, it really started before I became a police officer because when I was in the Army Reserves, I met a sergeant, his name was Bob Stout, that said, hey, Ken, you know, my department's hiring. I'm in charge of the bomb squad, but my department's hiring. I think you'd make a really good highway patrol officer. 
not once did I ever give a thought that I wanted to be a police officer. So I took the test, ended up getting hired. It took roughly six years, six years after getting hired and working patrol that the bomb squad had an opening for a part-time position. I also wanted to be a part of the SWAT team, but so I gave it some thoughts. I said, do I want to do bomb squad? Do I want to be SWAT team? But for the bomb squad, what they offered was when you become a bomb technician for Arizona DPS, you're also a breacher for the SWAT team. So I was like, I could do both things at the same time. So it's a great opportunity. I took the testing process to be a bomb squad uh, technician and was brought on. So I actually went to our SWAT school prior to going to the hazardous devices school in Huntsville, Alabama. And how long was that training? The, in Huntsville, Alabama, at the time, it was five weeks. And I was actually the class mom, is what they call the class leader, for those five weeks. And that really details the very beginning of, of how to respond to these uh, types of calls to actually operating uh, well-known robots that we use on the bomb squads throughout the country. We are talking with Ken Emerson. Ken is a retired Arizona State Trooper. He's also a bomb squad tech for Arizona DPS. He is a breacher for SWAT team. He is a patrolman, gang, detective unit, you name it. He's done it. We're going to talk more about the intricacies and stress of being a bomb squad technician. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Check out our most downloaded episode. This cop's battles with the LAPD, gangs, and the Aryan Brotherhood. It's in Season 4, Episode 41. Go to letradioshow.com or search for Law Enforcement Today Podcast. Return conversation with Ken Emerson calling us from Arizona. He is a retired Arizona State Trooper is also a United States Army veteran. And in your career, we're really focusing on your involvement in the bomb squad. Because I'll be honest with you, Ken, I find that fascinating in a very disturbing kind of way because I've seen movies. I'll give you an example. I think one was The Hurt Locker. And there's scenes in there where they're diffusing an explosive device and you can literally almost feel and and hear the beads of sweat rolling down his face and i'm thinking how can anybody do that under that kind of pressure is that realistic or is that of course overly dramatized for hollywood there is a huge difference between being an EOD technician for the military and then being a civilian bomb technician with the civilian bomb technicians we really do everything at a distance you know, that's why we really invest heavily into robots, because in that situation, you know, unless it's a life-threatening situation, we keep everything at a distance. In the military, you know, they really need to get down into the into the devices and handcuff a lot of different things and try and keep the soldiers safe. So it's more of an emergency when it comes to to the military. With the civilian side of law enforcement, you know, with you know, sending down the robots, evacuating the area, and a little bit of time to play with. If, for instance, you do have a life-threatening situation, they've had cases in the past with devices clicking down to a certain time and you can't do an evacuation, such as what happened in, in Boston, you may have to do a hand entry into those devices to render them safe and hope they don't go off. But for the most part, in civilian uh, bomb squads, we do everything at a distance. We have tools 
necessary to disrupt the devices at a distance. We can actually take them, put them in another kind of trailer and take them to a safe location to have them detonated. But in the military, you know, looking at the Hurt Locker, I've seen that movie a few times. You know, the individual takes his bomb suit off while he's trying to defuse some large, heavy artillery improvised explosive devices. That bomb suit's there pretty much to keep you in one piece. It does there, it is there to keep you safe. But when you got a device over a certain size, it's, it's not really going to help you much. The biggest battle we had here in Arizona is if you're having to put that nine-pound bomb suit on when it's 115 degrees out, and you got to go down on a device, shoot some X-rays, do whatever you got to do you know, to make sure that's safe. You know, we want to make sure the bomb techs are always safe. And when it's 115 degrees out in Florida, you know, in the southern states, when you got high humidity. You know, the safety of that officer that's in that, in that suit is paramount. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I started visualizing, remembering being a patrolman, a sergeant also in Baltimore, and a soft body armor, and the car with the AC not working in the summertime. It was brutally hot. So those outfits, right. those suits, got they have to be almost claustrophobic because they're, they're large, and you feel, it, I'm, I'm sure you feel enclosed in it, but they've got to be incredibly hot. It is incredibly hot, and they do have air circulating through those. The helmet has batteries that you can place in it. It has a fan in there that helps circulate the air through the suit. But the problem is, there's outside air that's going through the suit. Now, some bomb squads do have, most of them will have a frozen vest that they can put on over their T-shirt and then put the bomb suit on top of that, and that keeps you cool for about... 10 minutes in 115 degree weather. <laughs> but it's a little say. bit of something. So yeah, uh, oftentimes we have fire on, on scene, you know, to, to hose this off or to make sure we got plenty of water, check our, you know, our pulse rate, check our blood pressure to make sure, you know, we're fine. You brought up a, a case. You brought up Boston a couple times. And there's so many things about it. There's a pressure cooker bomb devices, which I'll be honest with you, I don't know anything about that stuff. But also, I believe when they were being pursued by police, they were throwing... Uh, handmade, homemade hand grenades, explosive devices at law enforcement as well. Correct, and I believe those were pipe bombs. So fairly easy to make. Most common type of IED in the country are pipe bombs, just because they're easy access. And uh, and I believe what they were doing was lighting those. They they had hobby fuses. At least in the movie, portrayed having them hobby fuses, lighting them and throwing them at the officers. I couldn't imagine having to go against that. The thought of chasing a man into an alley that killed someone in his arm with a gun, no problem. Did that many times. And as a matter of fact, part of it was actually, I kind of missed the rush from it. But the thought of going against people with explosive devices is something totally different. Correct. You're taking it to a whole new level. Because your soft body armor, it might stop a 9mm, 40 caliber round. That's not going to stop the shrapnel coming from an IED. And before the Boston bombing, I don't think a lot of people were really familiar with the pressure cooker bombs. I'd heard of them before. And like I said, I was, I'm by no means an expert. Uh, the other case we'll talk about in a moment, and then we'll go to your career, would be the Atlanta bombings, the Olympics. The pressure cooker bombs, that's something that's been around for a while. As a matter of fact, I believe there are instruction manuals you can purchase in books or online on how to make them. Correct. And when it, and we always thought, in the classes that I've taught are explosives or improvised explosive devices are limited to the imagination of the person building them. When we've gone on, on multiple SWAT calls 
other EOD calls in which, you know, we found pipe bombs that you could tell were made for specific purposes, and that's having triplers attached to them. So if you kick it, if you're going into a marijuana grow, and it sets those devices off. I don't believe a lot of those in the marijuana growth were aimed at law enforcement, but pretty much anybody that might come in, maybe another rip crew coming in to rip off this marijuana grow, they build these pipe bombs, but when we get involved and we get down there and find them, that's a huge concern for law enforcement as well. That's a term that's thrown around quite a bit, uh, pipe bombs, and a lot of people don't seem to take them very seriously. And the other one would be Molotov cocktails. And he, obviously, both can be deadly. Correct. And you, Molotov cocktails is an incendiary device because you're having you know, gasoline or whatever kind of fuel that you have inside the bottle. You have the fuse on the outside. They're lit and thrown. And when they break, of course, it just spreads that fire very quickly. And it's happened to police officers in the past, you know, where at riots that individuals are making Molotov cocktails and, and throwing them at officers, throwing them at vehicles, you know, throwing them against buildings to start a fire. They're very, very fast-burning. And if you mix it with the right kind of chemicals, it can stick to your body, similar to what they had in Vietnam. And, you know, it's just bad all the way around. I mean, you said earlier that the pipe bombs are the number one most common explosive uh, improvised device in America? Correct. How often did you guys encounter them? We actually, it's not very often that we see those. The majority of our calls were... You know, looking at suspicious packages of what somebody deemed suspicious, but we have gone on calls before where we found one in particular, three large pipe bombs that had nails that were glued to the outside of the pipe bomb. It had little switches on there with a hole in it, which indicated to us that they were for trip wires. And we believe they were built by the members either the cartels or drug gangs, and they were to be used inside a marijuana grove. But fortunately, members of the Arizona Department of Transportation found us sitting under a rock along the side of a highway, and they called us. We were enough to take a look at them. We were able to dispose of them safely, but we got some good pictures of them. We can see the nails on the outside of it, which adds additional shrapnel to these items. You know, with these attacks on law enforcement, you know, throughout the country lately, in the last year, the last couple of years, you know, I just... I hope you know it doesn't come to that as We're well. We're going to take so a short break. We are talking with Ken Emerson on the Law Enforcement Day Show. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Ken Emerson on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Ken is a retired Arizona State Trooper. He's also spent many years in their bomb squad. And in our conversations, Ken, you began 
firing up some gray cells. And it's not easy to do at my age. But I started thinking of some of the cases that uh, have been prominent in the United States. We talked a little bit about the Boston bombing uh, with the, at the marathon with the pressure cooker devices and the pipe bombs. Then we started talking a little bit about the Atlanta Olympics bombing. Those were all pipe bombs as well, weren't they? Well, the, I'm not quite sure. I believe the Atlantic uh, bombing was pipe bombs inside of a backpack. And Richard Jewell was the actual hero there to get people away from that device before it detonated. He was really treated horribly. I mean, I, to this day, I, I feel horrible about the, the way he was treated by different agencies and the media as well. But the guy, the suspect, uh, I think it was Eric Rudolph, he went around a bombing spree throughout the southeast United States, and they they hunted for him for years. You're correct, and he was found dumpster diving, actually, by a deputy, and I can't remember the name of the county in which he was captured, but Eric Rudolph was known for bombing, I believe, abortion clinics throughout the 80s, early 90s, right. and he was found dumpster diving by a deputy that stopped him, started talking to him, ended up arresting him, and, and that's how he was captured. And his big thing was was pipe bombs, and I believe he escalated to remote control or timed um, explosive devices. I believe so. With the with the uh, with timed devices, because actually one one bombing that he did, he blew up the front part of the abortion clinic, but then he had pipe bombs sending most to park the vehicles, knowing where the first responders were going to park their vehicles in response to that initial bombing. And that second, those second and third pipe bombs were aimed at the first responders. Fortunately, in this one incident, the brunt of the force was felt by the vehicles that he placed it by, and not by first responders. So that's in, uh, a technique. Again, this is something you're more proficient at, and you have a lot more experience at between the military and your law enforcement career. But that's a technique that's used by a lot of terror groups and also uh, fighters in guerrilla warfare. They plant an IED. And when help gets there, then they'll activate secondary and third devices. Correct. And that's what we teach a lot of times at the police academies. Or if the agency will call us for a class on infrared explosives, that's one of the things we teach them. If you get called to a bombing or a suspected bombing, wherever you're going to park, you need to make sure you walk around that area as well to make sure it's safe. If you see something suspicious, move away from that area and let the responding bomb squads know that, hey, there's a, another package at this location. And I think they just had that incident in California where the individual going on a shooting rampage, they went to his house, but they went with the bomb squad first to make sure there was no booby traps in that, in that residence. So we covered Atlanta, we covered Boston, now Ted Gazinski, the Unabomber. A little bit different, and this is another device that, I'll be honest with you, I never really gave much thought to. Letter bombs, package bombs, I can understand a package bomb, but we talked early in the conversation about X-raying a device and there were nails embedded in it. This is something he did quite often with his devices. Am I correct? Correct. And, and he had to be really good at what he was doing in order to hit his intended purpose because he's going to have it sent through the U.S. mail, through UPS, however method that he used. They're going to be handled by, you know, anywhere from three to, you know, 15 individuals to get it to where it needs to go. It could be pressurized going up in an airplane, you know, and then depressurized when it's coming down. So he had to really delve into knowing what he was doing so that it would get to his intended target and be initiated 
the way he had it planned. And from what I understand and from the studies that we've done, he, he did that really well. And he was the guy that got away for it for a very, very long time. And without giving names, I don't believe in giving names to books or killers. And I did it when I mentioned Ted Kaczynski. But there are books that people can buy online that will basically, and we're not going to get the name, but that can basically teach people how to create an explosive device in their own kitchen. Am I wrong? No, you're, you're correct, and unfortunately, you can find that information online as well. So you don't need to buy the books anymore. I'm sure you can find videos you know, online you know, showing you how to do those kinds of things. I'm hoping you know, with social media, you know, any kind of video that come out showing that kind of information, it could be taken down. But I believe the, uh, the Boston bombers received their information you know, through online sources, through emails, with your handlers, you know, the individuals that were teaching them how to do that. So you had to go to a, to, to Alabama for five weeks to get intensive training on handling. And I'm glad you said earlier, in the civilian law enforcement world, these devices are handled at a distance. Explain what that means. So the majority of the bomb squads throughout the United States, which are just close to 500 bomb squads in the United States, we utilize robots. So if you have a suspicious package, instead of walking down on that suspicious suspicious package in the 90-pound bomb suit, we can operate a robot to go down. And there's a way that we can transport x-ray equipment to go down there and place it there, shoot an x-ray, bring it back in, and take a look at what the package is. And they'll tell us if it's, a, if it's a live device or if it's a fake device or if it's just somebody's clothes. So we try to keep that distance. So if the device goes off, you know, we want to be further back so nobody gets hurt when it, when it detonates. In the military, the military guys, they go close to a year full of training, you know, to make sure they're safe and they get a lot of detailed information on how to handle improvised explosives that they would see in a war zone. In the civilian world, it's a five-week training course in Huntsville, Alabama. And then the FBI requires two days of training every month after that. And then every three years, we're required to go back to Huntsville, Alabama for recertification. That's one of the big misconceptions a lot of people have, and, and Hollywood doesn't help, that you, know, you go through the police academy and that's it. You never get training again. We we always had at least one week a year. Uh, we called it in-service training for all kinds of things. And we also had daily training in roll call. So when especially units like the bomb squad, you guys really, really intense training on top of everything else you had to do in the law enforcement field. Correct. And with DPS bomb squad, you know, like I said before, we were also members of the SWAT team, so we did training. We didn't do as much training with the SWAT team as you know we could have, but as breachers, we would we would do a lot of breaching training with the SWAT team, and then we were on the majority of the calls that we went on with those guys. You know, we were the breachers. We were the guys, whether we're using mechanical breaching techniques, using a ram and the pick, and later in my career, we started using explosive breaching techniques as well. That would have saved my shoulder. That would have saved a, a lot of injuries using the explosive devices or other mechanical devices. Back in the day, we used a sledgehammer or a ram. And the big guys always got that, so I wound up getting it quite often. And I'm paying the price for it in, in my ripe old age. You talked about in your career, in Arizona, being a mining state, you have a lot more calls for explosive devices, primarily old mining explosives. Correct. We get a lot of calls for old dynamite that somebody might be exploring a, a, a mine, 
a gold mine or a copper mine, and we'll get a pound. We'll find a case of old dynamite that doesn't look very healthy. You, you know, you're not going to want to move something like that. So a lot of times we'll blow it in place. We also get a lot of grandfathers that are passing away that used to be miners, and we'll get a call from their family, and we'll find an army camp full of old blasting caps, and they might be turning green. Very hazardous. It's something you absolutely don't want to touch. So we'll get in there. A lot of times we can't countercharge it in place because we don't want to bring the person's house down. So we'll have to remotely remove those using using a robot or whatever means necessary to keep it safe. Take it to a safe location out in the desert and countercharge it and get rid of it. We're talking with Ken Emerson. Ken is a United States Army veteran and also retired Arizona State Trooper. And during his career with Arizona State Police, he was a bomb squad technician. When we return, we're going to talk about a prison hostage situation and being deployed as a bomb squad tech and his experience. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Has this ever happened to you? You sign up for a free email newsletter, and within hours, you're receiving tons of spam. That won't happen when you subscribe for the free Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Ken Emerson on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Ken is a man of many accomplishments. He's a United States military veteran, United States Army, and also retired Arizona State Trooper. Thank you for your service in both. And during your career with Arizona State Police, you were a bomb squad technician and also a SWAT team breacher. They go hand in hand. A lot of agencies, they don't do that. They're separate divisions. I didn't know Arizona uh, combined the two. One of the things in your career and this is something a lot of people don't get either. In Baltimore, we had Baltimore City Jail. We had Maryland Penitentiary. Uh, and if they had riots, they had police would go there and they'd call the Maryland State Police and back up. And a lot of it would be sit and wait while the Division of Corrections handled it. But when they're really long, uh, sometimes you'd have to take an anti-riot type uh, stance with the inmates. And it could be very, very hazardous. You were on call for one of those, weren't you? Correct. We actually responded to the Lewis Prison Complex back in 2004 for a hostage situation that took place in January of 2004. And briefly, what happened there? Two guards were taken hostage by two prisoners. They overtook one of the towers at this prison complex, and they were held. One guard was held for, I believe, seven days, and then the other guard was held, a female guard, was held for 15 days. So... We initially got the call. We sent the SWAT team up there. The bomb squad also responded because we are the breachers. If for some reason we need to go in and try and breach that tower, you know, we were there to be able to, to assist with that. But our initial response, what we were tasked with, was developing or taking robots and taking items in the robot and driving them down to the tower and putting them a little insert into the tower, sort of like a bank does when they push it out, you put your money in, they pull it in. This tower had something similar to that. So 
we were taking items in the robot, driving it down there, and dropping them in those intakes so that the prisoners can have water, and that's how we're providing them uh, with water and food. And how long did this go? How long did they have hostages? So it was a total of 15 days. It's the longest in U.S. history. And unfortunately, you know, using those robots, I almost brought that to a conclusion on the first night because of the mistake I made um, utilizing those robots. I actually, the backside of those robots have fiber optic cables that you're using to drive them. And when I drove it down onto the tower to drop off some food, I got the cable wrapped up into the track and actually cut it, which caused it to die right there at the tower. So after a couple of hours of negotiating, we had to, to suit up myself and two fly officers and go down and get that robot. But the prisoners thought it was some kind of a ploy that we were going to storm the tower, and they were threatening to kill the hostages. But luckily that didn't happen. We were able to get that robot back and continue on with the mission. You said and, that uh, they had again, two two corrections officers held hostage. One was for, what, seven days? The other one was 15? Correct, yep. So it was the male and female officers that were held hostage. When the prisoners went to the tower, they attacked an officer inside the kitchen, and one individual took that officer's uniform and went down to the tower. And when he buzzed to come in, the officer inside noticed that he had the uniform on and a lot of men, only to get attacked inside the tower. Um, the male officer was knocked unconscious with an implement from the kitchen, and he went down, and then the female officer was attacked as well. And then the second inmate was able to get into the tower, and at that point, they took over the weapons that were inside the tower and held those individuals hostage again, one for seven days, I believe it was, and the other for 15 days. My thoughts are, are with them. I hope that uh, they weren't too badly physically and or emotionally scarred over that incident. I, I can't imagine not being. But I also can't imagine being on scene as a law enforcement officer and having to sit by idly while this is going on. It had to be very frustrating for you. Well, we definitely weren't idle because we were constantly training and figuring out what we needed to do to get inside that tower. So all the windows at the top of the tower were bulletproof glass and the rest of the tower is made out of brick. So we're developing ways that if we needed to get in there, in there quickly, you know, how can we do it safely without too much pressure for using explosives, you know, to hurt or kill, you know, everybody inside that tower. But at other times we would sit there and, of course, we were always on the ready to go within a minute's notice and we could hear the guards screaming, you know, not sure what was happening to them at the time, but it was very frustrating on our part that they wouldn't just let us go in and take them. The prisoners were very smart about what they were doing. They had the top part of the, the uh, tower in which they would come up and look around the yard, but they were smart enough to know that both of them couldn't be up there at the same time because the snipers would have taken them out. So anytime one of the prisoners went up to the top of the tower, the other one was inside the tower with his gun on the hostages. So if something happened with the individual on top of the tower, then the person inside the tower would execute his prisoners. That's a, a part of law enforcement I've never experienced. Thank God. Uh, I don't want to, and I'm not envious of those who have. I'll be honest with you, Ken. You can't go through a career in law enforcement and not experience a lot of trauma, and whether it be accidents or fires or, or deliberate acts of violence and, and see it infl inflicted on other people, and sometimes do yourself as well. 
But to sit there and listen to corrections officers screaming for extended periods of time, knowing that they're they're in harm's way and being harmed at the same time, I really don't know that I could do it. Well, being a police officer, you know, you know you can. You know, you're put in those situations. You're trained to be into those situations. It's it's not how you cannot handle it at the time of, of the event, but it's afterwards how you're going to handle it afterwards, especially with the officers that are inside the town. I know the female officer, she wanted to go back to work. She was ready to go back to work. And for one reason or another, I believe it was the state of Arizona, we're saying, no, you know, we're not going to bring you back to work. But she wanted to be back there. She wanted to get back to doing her job. And, you know, that takes a lot of strength to be able to do that. They're a special breed of people. Our corrections officers, I, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't do it. The noise alone, I couldn't handle. The stress, the pressure, the threats of violence, they are nonstop. They are law enforcement officers. They are first responders, and they are very much appreciated by me and many of our population across the United States, not understood. And I want to get more of them on the show. One of the things that you do now that you're retired is you work on trying to help people find careers in law enforcement, in particular, United States veterans. Tell us how you do that. Sure, absolutely. So I have a website at 50careers.com. I offer free advice and mentoring to military veterans that are coming out of the military and they want to get into law enforcement. I have over 13,200 agencies listed on my site. And for agencies, what I can do for them with a membership is I advertise their agency and I advertise the community in which they serve whether they're hiring or not. For veterans coming out, I'm well-connected through the Military Transition Assistance Program and through the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation Hiring Our Heroes Program. I go to transition summits that are held at military bases and give talks about what it's like to become a police officer coming out of the military. So basically what I'm doing is what Sergeant Bob Scout told me in 1994, hey, Ken, I think you'd make a good police officer. I'm doing the exact same thing just on a much greater scale. And right now, it's sorely needed. We have such a retention problem in the United States, and it's not just one particular agency. It's all across the country where experienced officers that are, I mean, these are men and women that are highly professional in what they do. They are college-educated. They are military veterans. They They often speak multiple languages, and they have lots of options. So a lot of them are choosing to retire or leave early, and so we have a void also with hiring their replacements. So we have a lot of agencies that have tremendous shortages of law enforcement. Have you encountered that? Yeah, absolutely. Agencies across the nation are losing great officers because they're losing support from the civilians. Not so much the civilians, but they're losing support from the government for which they work, whether it be a state or a municipal government or a county government that you know, or following in line with did you fund the police kind of rhetoric. And so agencies nationwide are having a really tough time recruiting qualified, you know, individuals. So my goal, or one of my goals, is to show that law enforcement is still a great and noble career to get into, that when you're sitting in your rocking chair after you're retired, you can think about the great things that you've done throughout your career. If, if there's certain bad eggs, just like there are bad teachers, you know, it, but not every teacher is bad. Right. So, the vast you know, majority are great. Bad. You, know, you get in here, you want to make a change, you can make the change yourself. 
what you see police officers doing, you don't like it, go in yourself and do it and make those changes. And, and before we run out of time, what is your website? One more time. It's 50careers.com. That's spelled out. F-I-D-E-O, 50careers.com. Ken, thanks so much for your service, and thanks for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. I really appreciate this opportunity, John Day. I really do. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, leave an honest review and or rating. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.